Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community Osteopathic, West Shore, Carlisle, Hanover, Lancaster, Lidditz, and Memorial Hospitals. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. U.S. Senate leadership announced late Tuesday they are scrapping a vote on the Graham-Cassidy bill, the latest iteration of a repeal-and-replace package designed to bring an end to the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare. Republicans have opposed the ACA since its inception, saying Obamacare costs too much, does nothing to control the cost of health care, limits choices for patients, and shouldn't require Americans to buy health insurance. But at the same time, millions of uninsured Americans, even those with pre-existing conditions, now have insurance. Insurance and states have received billions of dollars to expand Medicaid to insure those who can't afford insurance. Pennsylvania's acting secretary of human services and former state insurance commissioner Teresa Miller testified about Graham Cassidy in front of the Senate Finance Committee earlier this week, and she joins us today to discuss health care and health insurance. Secretary, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. That's the number to call, or send an email to smarttalk at org. As I mentioned, uh, you did testify in front of the Senate Finance Committee earlier this week. Generally, and I say generally because you didn't oppose everything in that bill, but uh, you did oppose it for the most part. What didn't you like about it? Sure. So the problem with this bill is it it completely dismantles Medicaid expansion. So here in Pennsylvania, we've added um, insurance. We've allowed uh, more than 700,000 Pennsylvanians to come on to Medicaid through Medicaid expansion. So 700,000 Pennsylvanians now have insurance where they didn't before the ACA. Um, And this would completely dismantle that. It also eliminates the financial assistance that individuals who purchase through the individual market, through the marketplace, eliminates all the subsidies and the cost-sharing reductions that they would have access to to help them afford coverage, and then takes that money and gives it to states in the form of block grants. But it does that by using a formula that really disadvantages states like Pennsylvania, who did choose to expand Medicaid and have really been doing everything we can to get more people uh, covered and have more people um, have access to quality, affordable insurance. So um, so that's really fundamentally the problem. And then it also takes the traditional Medicaid program and puts a, a per capita cap on that funding. So instead of matching state dollars where we have needs and where we have costs, it basically caps that and says, okay, you now have to manage to that cap. So, um, so Ultimately, we've looked at independent analyses. We've done our own analysis. And what we believe is that we would be seeing um, a reduction in federal dollars of anywhere from $15 billion, that's with a B, to $30 billion. And when we look over, at... Over a 10-year period. Over a 10-year right, period. Thank right. you. Um, so... That's fundamentally the the struggle we have is I I appreciate the desire to give states more flexibility to do what we can to innovate and make sure that we're expanding coverage to people. Um, That's been a big priority for the governor, a big priority for all of us who work for him. But I think the problem is the flexibility that they claim exists in this bill is not the kind of flexibility that certainly Governor Wolf or any of us are looking for, because at the end of the day, what that will translate into is Governor Wolf and other governors around the country having to make, you know, the most gut-wrenching decisions you could possibly have to make about who's going to get services or who no longer is going to have access to services because we don't have the funding, or what services are we going to cut, or, you know, we could reduce provider payments. None of those are good options, but that's really, that's not the kind of flexibility we're looking for. Well, the bill is is dead at this point. Um, Don't know, you know, we hear a lot about the politics of it, of whether it will be brought up again 
maybe not before the end of this year, but uh, there have been uh, members of Republican leadership in Washington who said, oh, we promise this will come up again next year or sometime in the future. But what I did want to talk about, even though, you know, this particular bill is dead, you touched on this right at the very end of, of your your answer there, uh, states having more flexibility. That was one of the big selling points for Republicans in this is that, you know, it makes more sense. And I heard a lot of people say it does make more sense for those closest to the people, the states, to be able to come up with their own plans. So with that said, you know, aside from this bill, if Pennsylvania was to come up with its own plan, what would it look like? Well, I think the the ACA is working well for for Pennsylvania. I, I think uh, it's it's not perfect, and none of us have said it's perfect. But we have 1.1 million people who are covered through either Governor Wolf's Medicaid expansion or the individual market. Many of those people, most of them, probably did not have coverage before the Affordable Care Act. So I think because we took advantage of the opportunities provided by the ACA, we have really expanded coverage for for people in Pennsylvania. So I think we would like to keep that system. I think what really needs to happen, though, and what I had the opportunity and the privilege to testify before Congress a couple weeks ago before the Senate Help Committee on ways that we can stabilize the individual market. And that's really when we talk about the ACA not being perfect, and it's not, it's really in that targeted area that we're talking about. Because for most people, the ACA has improved their lives, but it's not working perfectly for everyone. And when I think about the people I hear from, it's really the people in the individual market. And it's important to level set and and just understand that that's the individual market covers about 5% of Pennsylvanians. So it's a really small market. Um, It's an important one, though, because this is where people have to buy coverage on their own. Um, But most of the people in that market have access to subsidies, and and many of them have access to cost-sharing reductions that help them pay their co-pays and their deductibles. So they have financial assistance that helps make those those uh, that coverage affordable. But there's about one to two percent of Pennsylvanians that don't have access to financial assistance in the individual market. Those are the people that are not being served as well by the ACA as they could be. And we need to help them and we need to do something about that. So the way we do that is by stabilizing the individual market. That's the way you, quote, fix the ACA and make sure it's working for everybody. And I was encouraging Congress this week to to go back and and let Senators Alexander and Murray finish the work that they started. It was it's a bipart. It's called the bipartisan plan that they're working on. It it is. And and we had when I was there testifying, I was on the first panel um, when they started a series of hearings, and it was insurance commissioners from red and blue states talking about ways we can stabilize the market. We all were saying the same thing. And to your point about state flexibility, the ACA has uh, what we call Section 1332 waivers that states can get. So if, if Pennsylvania decided we wanted to completely revamp our system and do something very different, we could do that through the Section 1332 waivers. And when I testified and when a lot of my colleagues testified... We gave Congress um, some ideas for how we can improve that waiver process, make it easier for states to get those waivers, kind of streamline the process, allow states to build on waivers that other states have already gotten approved, for example, very easily without having us go through a long process. Um, So there are ways we can improve um, the 1332 waiver process, but also ways we can stabilize the individual market, for example, by committing to paying these cost-sharing reductions that we're hearing so much about. Well, can I interrupt for just a second? Sure. Because I wanted to ask, what does stabilization look like? The the Trump administration, President Trump has said often, and there are Republicans in Congress who said that uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare is imploding. And uh, there were times where he said, I'm just going to let it implode and, and go from there. Uh, and then there are other people who will say, well, one of the reasons if it is imploding, then they disagree with that. Uh, if one of the reasons it's not doing as well is because these cost sharing you know, mechanisms that you're talking about. One thing. Another thing the Trump administration is not doing is advertising, promoting the open enrollment that starts on uh, November 1st. So it yes. may fail under, well, at this point, I don't know if I'm, it may fail, but it won't be as easy to succeed, put it that way, if it doesn't get some support from the federal government. That's exactly right. And for a lot of us, that's been the biggest frustration is hearing some Republicans and the president talk 
talk about we're just going to let Obamacare fail. In Pennsylvania in particular, Obamacare is not going to fail on its own. It's only going to fail if the federal government does not do what it needs to do, really in just allowing the law to to be implemented the way it was intended. So paying cost sharing reductions like were included in the law and doing the advertising that the last administration did to make sure you get people in the risk pool and get more people covered. So um, to, to the extent the individual market is not working as well as it could be. And in in Pennsylvania, it's actually working pretty well right now. But to the extent it's not in other states, it's really because of the uncertainty that's been created by all the conversations in uh, D.C. about repealing the ACA. You know, the beginning of this year, when I started talking to our insurance companies and asking them how things were going and what they thought about the individual market, they said that starting in 2017, they were seeing improved experience. So for the first time in in three years, really, um, the market was starting to stabilize. They, they said, we're not there yet, but we are on our way. And I think when we got our rate filings that showed an average uh, proposed increase of 8.8%, that was further evidence that our market really is stabilizing. But every single company said the same thing. They said, you know, we feel good about this market, but all these conversations happening in D.C. about repealing the ACA and the uncertainty about whether cost-sharing reductions are going to continue and just what's going to happen and what next year is going to look like. Is the ACA going to be in place or not? All of that uncertainty has them very concerned, and that's what's kind of continuing to keep our market in a situation where we're not completely stabilized because our companies are not sure that that Congress and the federal government really want to stabilize the individual market. Uh, Here's the but. Uh, Republicans, and one of the reasons that uh, they've criticized it from the very beginning, again, politics aside, is that uh, the premiums have increased in some states a great, great deal. Um, I mean, it, you said stabilize 8.8% here in Pennsylvania. You know, that uh, compared to some other years, that doesn't sound like a lot, but for someone who is paying more, paying that almost 9% more, that does sound like a lot. It can be a lot, put it that right. way. So, there, the premiums have gone up, and choices are limited because there are insurance companies that have pulled out of some markets. And we've lost some here in Pennsylvania, not nearly as many as in some other states where there is no choice whatsoever. What to do about that? That's why we need to stabilize the individual market. And some of the ideas we talked about would help bring those premiums down. And and you're right. I, I really worry about a lot of the premium increases we've seen. And to your point about the 8.8%, I think at some point we need to shift the conversation and stop talking about insurance and stop and start talking about the cost of health care. Because that 8.8% really is a reflection of the increase in cost of health care. And we need to tackle that if we're truly going to get to a point where we have affordable premiums on the insurance side. But if we go back to the discussion we had at the HELP Committee, doing things like insuring payments for cost sharing reductions, one of the other ideas we talked about was reinstituting the the federal reinsurance program. That will bring premiums down for everyone. It, it helped reduce premiums while it was in place, but it was a three-year temporary program. So if we brought that back, that would certainly help reduce premiums. If you get more people in the market and and stop talking about eliminating the individual mandate, but instead start doing more advertising and getting more people in the risk pool, the more young, healthy people you have in, the more that's going to bring premiums down for everybody. So there are things we can do to bring premiums down and to stabilize this market and to get more competition. And again, if you're talking about getting more competition, you got to get rid of the uncertainty around this market. You're not going to attract companies to this market while they don't know if the ACA is going to continue next year or the year after or beyond that. So if you stabilize that market, I think you get more companies interested in coming in and you bring premiums down. We know that one of the reasons that the premiums have gone up is just something that you mentioned, that uh, uh, it was counting on young healthy people for the most part, uh, getting insurance, and that would offset or some, somewhat offset some of the, the premiums for those who use the system. Why would you be optimistic or are you optimistic that uh, looking ahead to the future, that younger people who are healthy, that uh, they would get involved? You know, if we could bring the premiums down, I think that would help. So again, back to that, if we can stabilize the individual market 
And and again, my concern is what the federal government is doing in the administration in terms of reducing the outreach and enrollment and assistance, the navigator assistance to help people get enrolled. That is not going to be helpful. If we can go in the other direction and put more money towards those efforts, I think that will help. But also, we need to bring those premiums down if we're going to get young people uh, buying these policies, which we need them to do. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com spine. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest during this portion of the program is Pennsylvania's Acting Secretary of Human Services, Teresa Miller. We're talking about health insurance, health care. The Secretary uh, testified before the Senate Finance Committee earlier this week about Graham Cassidy, which is uh, now got not going to come up for a vote and apparently is dead at this point. 1-800-729-753. Let me just do this again. 1-800-729-7532. That is the number to call if you have a question or a comment, like to weigh in. Or you can send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that number is 1-800-729-7532. Let's take a phone call from Brett in Ephrata. Brett, you're on the air. Thank you. Um, I was listening to your guest there, and I'm wondering what business does the government have um, in the health maintenance plan? I mean, that's not insurance. I'm in the insurance business. You buy insurance for an accident or, you know, something serious. I just went on Medicare. I had to drop my private insurance for my wife and I because we were paying 2500 a month with a high, very high deductible for two people. Why did we need all the other garbage they have on there? Health insurance was never a government thing. It was given by businesses to get employees. Why not go back to, you need a checkup, you go in, you pay the doctor for the checkup like the old days, you get insurance just in case you have a heart attack, fall off a roof or something like that. Where does the government get in telling business what to do, how to run their business, what they have to sell? Why does my wife who's going on Medicare in a few years, need pregnancy coverage. Hey, hey, Brett, thank you very much for your call. Secretary, I mean, this kind of goes back to uh, there are still a lot of people, obviously, who uh, have that point of view that this is something government shouldn't be doing. And I think it's important. I think sometimes people confuse the exchange with government insurance. Um, the ACA kept the private market system in place. This is not government insurance. When people are buying coverage through the exchange, they're not buying government insurance. They're buying a Highmark plan or an Aetna plan or or a plan provided by a private insurance company. So we didn't, the, the Obamacare and the ACA didn't fundamentally change the fact that health insurance companies are still providing this coverage. What it did do is ensure that coverage is meaningful and and has benefits like preventive services to encourage people to to stay healthy so we can avoid the really expensive um, care and and expensive events on the other side. Um, But it also made sure that people can afford the coverage because it it has a lot of financial assistance. So to the extent the government's involved, it's helping people pay for that coverage. But to his point, $2,500 a month. I mean, that, that's a lot for anyone. It absolutely is. And I, I couldn't agree with him more. And, and I think what we heard, what I heard um, at the hearing on Monday is Democrats, Republicans, all of us are saying the ACA is not perfect and it's not working well for everybody. So we need to fix it. But that means we need to focus on stabilizing the individual market. And really, my guess is this gentleman is probably in that one to two percent of Pennsylvanians who may be in the individual market but are not getting access to that financial assistance that a lot of people have access to. And those are the people that really are not being well served by the ACA, and we need to fix it so that they are being better served. Something you mentioned before we took the phone call, 
and I wanted to touch on this because this is a big deal. I mean, Obamacare, as it's been referred to, actually, it's the Affordable Care Act. There's a uh, a whole long name to it. Uh, But if you went by that name, Affordable Care Act, you mentioned the cost of health care and how that drives premiums. What can we do to get the cost of health care under control? Um, You know, Republicans have criticized it, saying it has done nothing to bring health care costs down. We talked to someone from the the Pennsylvania Hospital Association and say, well, there are some things that it has done. But for the most part, it has not had the, the desired effect of bringing those costs down. What can we do? And I think that's a very legitimate criticism of the ACA. I think it was very focused on coverage, which is important, and we have a lot more people covered. But it really didn't do a lot to to actually address the underlying cost of care. So I think there are a, there's no silver bullet. There are a lot of things that we can do, and we need to move towards. I think we we need to look at more opportunities to provide cost and quality transparency. This is an area where there is not good information out there for consumers to be educated, informed consumers, and to make good decisions about going and finding quality providers. Shopping is what you're talking about, yeah. Like we do everywhere else in our lives. This is an area where we can't do that because there's just not good transparency around quality and around cost. So we've been doing some things in Pennsylvania to try to address that, but that's one area. I think another is trying to figure out how we can move away from kind of the fee-for-service system where we pay providers for all the health care they deliver instead of trying to figure out how we make people healthy and changing the way we pay them. So we're paying them to keep people healthy as opposed to paying them to deliver services where the incentive is for them to get people to come back. And that's just not the kind of system we want. So I think there are we also need to find a way to get at prescription drug costs. That's one of the major drivers when we look at what's driving premium costs. The one of the fastest underlying drivers in terms of health care costs is that increase in, in prescription drugs. And that's something we really need the federal government to help us with. That's not something that we're going to be able to do a lot about at the state level. There may be some transparency efforts. I think there's a bill in the legislature around transparency. And that's not a bad thing. I think that's certainly a good thing. But I think we need the federal government to help us figure out how we can try to hold drug companies accountable and how we can get at those underlying costs, because that's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. I'm going to jump around on you a little bit. Uh, a program that we're doing on Monday that it's an issue that has gotten a little bit of traction. Bernie, Senator Bernie Sanders, former Democratic presidential candidate, and that is Medicare for all, a one-payer system. Um, it would be very, very expensive. But your thoughts on that? You know, my job is to protect the health and safety of of Pennsylvanians. And right now, we are under constant attack from the federal government, whether it's, you know, attempts to cut funding for Medicaid or remove protections for Pennsylvanians who need access to, to quality, affordable coverage. So I am really focused on what's happening right now because I think we have a pretty serious situation and I don't see these attacks going away anytime soon. So... That's really where I'm focused. So you don't have point. a public opinion. Th- that's right. My, my public <laughs> opinion is we need to get the individual market stabilized and fix the ACA, and then we can worry about that. So if this becomes more serious, then we'll talk about it. Sure. Publicly. Sure. <laughs> okay. Let's go to uh, Corey in Lancaster. Corey, you're on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Um, I think you you may have gotten at this just a bit when I was uh, talking to the the call screener, but I'm I'm wondering why we're not talking more about bringing down the cost of healthcare services, um, which could then bring down the cost of, of insurance. If if we look around the world at other uh, other countries, systems in America tends to not be great at doing. But we see that uh, you know they they do put caps on what prescription drugs can cost and various services, which then has done a great job for them of bringing down the cost of services and the cost of, of health care in general. So I'm wondering why we're not talking more about uh, more federal government involvement because it seems to have benefited other health care systems. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, and again, we're, we can only talk in generalities here, but... Uh, you know, he talked about a cap on prescription drugs, for example, and we do know that there are cost controls in other count, uh, other countries, I should say, uh, put on by their their governments. 
that's not something that would work here? Or is it something we've even tried? I think that's the conversation we need to be having. And and honestly, that's been my biggest frustration over the last several months is we keep talking about repealing the ACA, replacing it, and and taking steps that would result in millions of Americans losing their health insurance. We need I, – I couldn't agree more with this gentleman. That is the conversation we should be having. How can the federal government help us address the underlying costs of care? Because states are not going to be able to do it alone. I think a lot of us are trying to be innovative and creative, and Governor Wolf has a health innovation plan that we've been working on. So we've been trying to address some of these issues. But we're going to be limited at the state level. We really need the federal government to engage. And so my sincere hope going forward after this week is I'm glad we dodged the bullet. I worry that we're not done dodging those bullets. But if we can change the conversation to how do we stabilize the individual market, that's the most immediate crisis we have for the near term. But then we need to be talking about the real problem. How do we get at those underlying costs of care? Because if we want affordable health insurance going forward, that's the only way we're going to get there. Mm -hmm. Let's take another phone call from Mark in Lancaster. Mark, you're on the air. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. A couple things I I, uh, noted from your guest. She talks about stabilization at 8.8%. And I'm looking, and if you're an individual in the middle class and you try to get health insurance, uh, you know, like for me and my my family, it's going to cost about $24,000 a year. So, you know, if stabilization to her is 8.8%. That's over $2,000 a year more this year than it cost last year. Uh, that's a heck of a trajectory. Uh, you know, the other thing she says is we can get the federal government to subsidize. The federal government has to get its money from somewhere. And what are they going to do? They're going to tax the middle class more to get the money. Otherwise, we go from $20 trillion in debt to $40 trillion in debt. So, you know, when they say this, system is, is imploding you got to kind of agree with it and i mean we turn this whole system on its head because you know, they said 18 million let's just say 20 million americans didn't have health insurance they were uh, uninsured well there's 300 and approximately 320 million people in the u.s so we took less than 10 percent of the population uh we totally switched things around and now the middle class, like they always do, is really paying for it. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Secretary? You know, I think uh, he makes a good point. When I talk about the 8.8% uh, proposed increases in the individual market, meaning that we have a stabilized market, I think his point is well taken. <clears throat> I hope we get to a point where 8.8% doesn't mean that we have a stabilized market. But I think when you look at other states and when you look at just a market that's stabilizing, if your increases are in line with the increases of health care costs, then you have an insurance market that's stable. And that was kind of my point. But I think my second point would be that's also unacceptable going forward, which gets back to the discussion we've been having about if we can get at those underlying costs and keep the the increases in health care costs to a 1%, 2% level, that's much more uh, reasonable, I think. We're just, we're just not there yet because we haven't been focused. And again, that's, I think, a very legitimate criticism of the ACA. It wasn't focused on the underlying costs of care. That's the problem we have to tackle now. Mm-hmm. Something, and this is not necessarily related to the Affordable Care Act, but uh, something else that actually has to happen, like right now, and that is uh, children health insurance, CHIP, as it's called here in Pennsylvania, and money for uh, community health centers. Uh, that money for those two programs has to be renewed by Congress, I think, this week. That's right. Uh, so what do you hear there? Well, several of the Democrats at the hearing on Monday continued to say, I'm glad we're having this hearing, but we also have another piece of legislation that we need to address, and that's the CHIP proposal and the the reauthorization. So everything I hear sounds like, yes, we're going to do this, but we're now Thursday, and I think the deadline is Saturday, so I haven't heard that it's scheduled for a vote or anything like that, but very much hope that 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 is on their agenda before the end of this month. Tell me how that works as far as CHIP. I mean, we have here in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is one of the first states, if not the first state, to have a a children's health insurance program. And 
it seems that even members of both parties agree that it's an important program and it's something that must be continued. But what's the relationship between the feds and the state? Well, the federal government provides a lot of the funding for CHIP. Um, the state, I believe, does provide some funding as well. But this is this is um, an area that, again, we rely on federal funding for. And uh, we also have a, a program where... Uh, people who don't receive subsidies to help them pay for their CHIP plans can can buy into these plans so they can pay the full premium and also um, have this coverage. It's great coverage. I've, I've never heard anyone complain about the CHIP program. I, I think it works very well and, and ensures that, that we have a lot of kids uh, covered in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, just out of curiosity, you know, something else that, because uh, I go back to when Obamacare was being debated. Uh, and one of the selling points at that time is that, okay, uninsured people would be able to get insurance. They'd go to the doctor if they haven't been there for years. I have an email here saying from a woman saying, I, I, I can't afford my copay, so I'm not going to the doctor anymore. But the bottom line was that the nation, the state, would be healthier. Any evidence that Americans, Pennsylvanians, are healthier as a result of this? I think we do have a lot of evidence, and I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I think we do have a lot of evidence that Pennsylvanians and Americans are getting preventive services where maybe they weren't before. And um, and I think in, in a lot of cases, you know, part of what the Affordable Care Act was trying to do is make sure people weren't going bankrupt when they needed care. So it was really focused on that. But I think um, we do know a lot of people have gotten access to preventive care that they wouldn't have had access to before. Whether or not we're healthier as a state, um, I think is a good question. I think we, um, we always need to be aiming to be even healthier. But I I think access to preventive services, which is something that under Graham-Cassidy wouldn't have been guaranteed going forward, but I think that is incredibly important. Mm. I, I think I'm healthier, but I'm older, too, so, and I think it has something to do with it. <laughs> it's a whole other issue. It is. I can't stop that. Pennsylvania's Acting Secretary of Human Services, Teresa Miller. Secretary Miller, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Bill James began his career reporting on baseball. His interest in numbers and statistics caused him to take different perspectives in his writing. He later developed sabermetrics, the method of using statistical analysis to staff baseball teams and evaluate players. And uh, this was popular, popularized by the 2003 book-turned-Brad Pitt film Moneyball. He now works as a senior advisor on baseball operations for the Boston Red Sox. But James, working with his daughter Rachel, used this analytical approach in an investigation of a series of murders across the country that took place in the early 20th century. Bill and Rachel McCarthy James chronicled their findings in the book The Man from the Train. Joining us is Bill and Rachel McCarthy James. Thank you for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having us. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Our phone number, if you have a question or a comment for Bill or Rachel James, is 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Uh, Bill James, as I just mentioned, you're the father of baseball sabermetrics and analytics. In fact, you've changed how baseball players are evaluated, even, even how the game is played. But you also are called a true crime expert. What drew you to these 100-year-old crimes and made you want to write about it? Well, I had the realization, or I had the thought, or you could call it an inside ambitiously, but I had the, had the idea that um, I could find out, I could connect to this series crimes that had not been connected at the time. There were a series of crimes, about six or seven, that were connected by people at the time, but I realized that there had to be other crimes that were connected that I could find if I worked at it. Why did you think that? The um, It's apparent to anyone who knows how serial murderers tend to do things that the first crime associated at that time, which was a uh, in, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, wouldn't was not the first time he had done this. In the Colorado Springs murders, he killed two families at the, on the same night. He, he broke into a house, murdered a family, and then went next door and murdered a family there as well. That's not something that a a first-time murderer would do. 
a serial, no matter how crazy he is, he he starts smaller and works up to that level of of uh, rage. And so I knew that wasn't the first time he'd done that. Rachel, you know, uh, maybe a, a serial killer would be a good uh, father-daughter project. Uh, <laughs> do you have an interest in true crimes as well? I do. Uh, not quite as, um, you know, Dad has always been primarily interested in baseball and murder. Uh, <laughs> but I And I, I always knew that, and I've always taken some interest in it. Um, but I'm kind of a generalist. I tend to flit around in what I write about. Like I just published an article on Racked about Racked on makeup this week. Um, so I tend to switch from topic to topic. But when Dad presented this opportunity to me to be a research assistant on this book, um, I thought that it was a really interesting opportunity to do some research and dig into a topic that I didn't know much about, which was uh, both true crime, which I'm a casual. Uh, uh, consumer of, like a lot of women my age, and um, both looking at and also looking at old newspapers, which was really interesting to me because I'd never really taken a close look at that uh, type of material. Yeah, and uh, a lot of the material that you did get was from uh, these old newspapers, and Primarily, that mu- yeah. that yeah. must have been difficult because even though uh, so many communities kept their old newspapers in libraries or they have it on microfilm, they right. wrote so differently about these things that uh, sometimes you'd all- almost have to kind of uh, translate or w- what they're talking about, wouldn't you? Absolutely. And, um, I mean, there was a lot that would get lost in translation between these uh, reports across the nation, because sometimes they'd copy each other's uh, work. Sometimes they'd add one thing to another. Sometimes they would um, tear it off the wire or something like that, and something would get lost in translation. For example, there was one case in uh, Florida uh, in the or just after the turn of the century, I think 1903, in which we had four different names for one family, Kelly, Kathy, Coffee, Smith. Uh, it was a black family, and it was Florida, which is a low it- literacy area. So we were never really able to figure out what exactly their name was, whether it was the name of the mother-in-law who found them, or if it was just lost in translation or a rumor or something like that. So you had to fight against these small-town rumors, and just elaborations that wouldn't cut muster at any small-town newspaper today, let alone major newspapers. Mm. So, Bill, let's go back to a time period that we're discussing is from the late 1890s to uh, through, like, the mid-teens in the 1900s, and all over the country. And as you said uh, very early on, that uh, at the time, very few people, if anyone, connected as many crimes. No one committed as many crimes as as you did in the book, uh, but, you know, some of them were, were connected at the time. Talk about the consistencies that this murderer had. Uh, you said that you found 34 different traits that was consistent with this murderer. What were some of the major ones? The, uh, well, for one thing, he always attacked about midnight. Uh, he never killed anyone when the sun was shining, as far as we know. He always broke in through a rear window, usually removed a screen at the back of the house and crawled in through a window. In fact, if a door was open... And a window beside it, he goes through the window. He's like the, the uh, he always covered the uh, locked the house up tight when he le- left and covered every window. Sometimes he would cover uh, mirrors with cloth inside the house. He would cover the faces of the victims with cloth before he hit them over the head with a with an axe. He always used an axe. Always used the blunt side of the axe. He usually attacked on weekends. Most of the crimes occur in areas where the primary industry is logging. The, um, there are a long series of things that identify the attack with no warning whatsoever. No one, he left money in the room. Uh, he left in plain sight in almost every crime. The, uh, Another thing that distinguished him was that he always attacked families. All of these are murders of families. None of them are individual murders. It's all families, almost always families with a young girl present. And that is a very important point, and I think that uh, it's, it's, you know, from reading the book, it's something that you point out is that the, one of the major motivations of this murderer, who you do name later in the book, uh, but talk about why that is an important component to this, that there was always a young girl uh, as part of the family. Well, a little early to talk about that. 
Go ahead, Dad. Go ahead, Dad. It's an important part of the story, but it's it's also kind of you know disgusting to talk about. But he was a, he was a pervert. The uh, and he one of his major motivations was to possess the dead body of a young girl. Um, and he it's hard to talk about this, but he he liked to possess dead bodies. There were a number of times in the series in which a Huge blood stain was found in one room, but there was no body in the room. After he killed the person, he would move the body to another room. He dragged bodies around for no apparent purpose and stacked them on top of one another in in many of his different crimes. This is one of the ways that we know that it's him when we see that behavior. And when you say possess the bodies, and you're right, it is, it is something that is uh, it's, we don't like to talk about. But uh, and, and Rachel, I want to ask you about this as well, um, yeah. about how the newspapers described it. But apparently he had sex with the bodies after they were dead, correct? Not quite. Usually he would just uh, use them to look at. Usually it would say that the bodies had not been outraged, which was the parlance of the time to say that they had not been directly sexually assaulted, but I always found it interesting that they would say it had not been outraged when they'd been brutally murdered. Um, but that was one of the ways that the small-town newspapers would communicate what happened at the scene and answer the reader's questions without... Uh, scandalizing them, I suppose. Hmm. So just to give uh, our listeners a sense of how wide this was, geographically, we're talking murders where? Uh, I mean, because many of them that were linked were in the Midwest. But yes. how it far? Was in, it was coast to coast. It was coast to coast. coast to coast. Yeah, the first one was in Massachusetts. There were several in Florida, uh, several in Texas, several in Iowa and Kansas. Uh, the two in Colorado Springs, and then several in the Pacific Northwest. And there was but, one uh, here in Pennsylvania, right? Uh, uh, the, uh, we're, the Zeus we family so, could, but, could be connected, but not, probably not the ones in Pennsylvania. Yeah. The, the, uh, but although the crimes run coast to coast, there are very tight geographical patterns in each yes. sub-series of murders. It isn't like he would, he would jump from Utah to, to Texas. There would be a crime in Florida. By one point, there's a crime in Florida, followed by one in Georgia, followed by one in South Carolina, followed by one in Virginia, followed by one in West Virginia. Uh, very. Another point is one in Iowa, then Missouri, then Kansas, then Texas. They're very clear and obvious geographical patterns to each subseries of murders. But over a period of years, they ran coast to coast. But the, the title of the book is The Man from the Train, The Solving of a Century-Old Serial Killer Mystery. And when you talk about the geography and how there is a pattern, there also another pattern is that almost all of these uh, these murders occurred near railroad tracks, correct? Right. Yes, that's correct. Oh. Yeah. Go ahead, Dad. Usually within, the, usually within 200 yards of a railroad track. Uh, and not only a railroad track, but almost all within uh, within easy walking distance of the intersection of two railroad tracks. And we assume that he did that because if there were multiple railroad tracks and there was less chance that, let's say he's committed the murder and it's 4 o'clock in the morning and he needs to train out of, out of town fast, if there are multiple railroad tracks, there's much less chance that he's going to be stand, stranded there waiting for a train to come by. So that we it assume was- it. Go ahead. It was a very effective technique. It was it it gave him the ability to get out basically before anyone knew what had happened, before the bloodhounds could come, before anyone could track him down. And this does go back to his very first crime, in which he was seen on the train, uh, basically trying to throw them off the track. But he was known in the area in the first crime, so he was recognized. So it it was interesting to go back and do this research and find that even in the first crime, he was hopping on the train after his crimes and uh, basically throwing the police off their track from that way, in that way from the very first uh, murder in 1898. So how many murders do you think that the man from the train committed? Uh, roughly 100, and we think probably we've, we've got most of them in this book, but we would expect that there are a few that we have missed somewhere, just because, as you said, we don't have access to every small-town newspaper in America from 
1898 to 1913. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's in microfiche that hasn't been transferred to the newspaper archive we use, or there's things in court records, or things that didn't get reported in the newspapers that we looked at. Um, so I think that there, we've got about 100 in this book, and I think that there are more out there to find. Would you say people read this book? Would you say that this is America's first serial killer and maybe most prolific serial killer? It could prolific, be the most maybe. prolific, but 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 it was not clear. It was clear not the first. There were there are there are at least twenty twenty five documented serial murders before this. He may be the worst, but then no one ever actually really knows because since murder is by its nature done in secret. In fact, that is one of the old definitions of murder: is a killing done in secret. The uh, uh, it's very hard to document, but I mean he, he was. I will tell you this: you've never read a book about a, a killer this all this awful. I mean he is he is beyond the pale. The estimate of a hundred actually includes um, seven to nine people who were lynched, uh, black people who were lynched because he uh, they were suspected of a crime that he had in fact committed. And it includes a couple of people who were lawfully executed by the state uh, for crimes that he had committed. Yeah, and that that's something we should mention, that uh, in the book you point that out, that in, uh, I don't know if many is the word, but in a number of the, these crimes, someone else was accused, arrested, and as you said, executed or sent to prison. Right. I'd say in most of these, someone else was accused. Now, not in the, I wouldn't say in most of them someone else was executed or lynched. In many of them, yes, but in most crime cases, like the Villisca case that set all this off, it often would tear apart the town for the it tore apart the town for the next ten years or so as people debated who did this, and all of their answers were basically wrong. Almost all of these murders occurred in small towns near railroad tracks. Yeah. I think you point out that there's only one that was actually in a in a city. Uh, but at the time, a hundred over a hundred years ago, uh, we're talking about small town police departments. If there were police departments at all, there might might have been a, a sheriff. But, you know, these these uh, these police departments or sheriff's departments, number one, they didn't see these kind of crimes very often. But they didn't really know how to investigate. Talk about how they would investigate these cases. And that can probably explain why so many people missed the opportunity to see that these cases were related. The uh, uh... Well, the first thing they had to do in order to begin an investigation was they had to come up with the money to begin an investigation somewhere. And this often took a week. So at the start of an investigation, before you could begin to begin to figure out who did this, you had to somehow come up with the money to, to fund an investigation. That was, that was a big problem. The, Not to uh, mention that uh, crime scenes were never preserved. People were just walking through the crime scenes, uh, it basically infecting them and sometimes even getting themselves uh, turned into a target of the investigation. Um, and there were just a lot of issues with small-town police once, forces back then. Once, once they finally came up with the money, then they, then they would hire a private detective or they would post a reward. And in many cases, dozens of private detectives, many of them with no credentials whatsoever, would flood into the town and start interviewing people and start building a dossier against someone. Uh, with uh, so it, it was basically led by private detectives who were working on spec. They were they were trying to qualify themselves for the reward money. And in some cases, thing, yeah, I was going to say in some cases they actually had motivation to not solve the case because they wanted to make more money. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. And one thing to get back to what you were saying about. Um, small towns being unprepared to deal with this, they also didn't know what serial killers were. Serial killers are a very familiar topic now, now uh, today to anyone who's reading the papers today, but back then that wasn't something that happened. At the end, towards the end of his rampage, they started to catch on and say that the fiend who did the crimes in Colorado Springs, but for most of his tenure, they just didn't realize that someone would do this with no motivation and 
uh, just for the fun of killing, basically. We have about three minutes left. I want to thank both of you for being with us today. So here's thank the you. part that here's the part that uh, a lot of people are wondering about. Kind of kept it to the end. You actually identify the man you think is the man from the train who committed uh, close to a hundred murders. Uh, I don't know whether you want to give a name or not, but describe. No spoilers. No spoilers there, but describe the man that uh, you identify. Well, he actually found it. I did actually find it. Um, uh, Well, he was a um, he worked at the farm of the first family who was killed and he was known to everybody around them um, because he was very skilled in a lot of ways. He was uh, an um, Austrian or German soldier. And he at one point impressed everybody in town by saving a horse that nobody thought would be able to be saved. He was also a good carpenter. Um, had a number of skills that he had available. But he was also a short, ugly, angry-seeming little man who didn't have a lot of good things going for him. Um, He was a very, you know, as horrible as he was, he was a very sad, self-hating individual who just had, uh, was alienated from society in a lot of ways and just had a lot of hate in his heart. And so he took to not exactly tramping, as we would normally think of it, but getting on trains across town and indulging his horrible hobby. And there were some some parts in there that, I mean, you used some investigative work. Uh, you mentioned that he was short. Uh, there was one murder yeah. where uh, the, the the ceiling was short and it had to oh, be yeah. and where the axe, the blood from the axe was uh, going on the ceiling and had to be uh, committed by someone who was short. So there were just a lot of different things like that that points to to this one guy. That's just one example. That was right. that was more dads, to be fair. We, we were very surprised at how close the connections are between yeah. the series of murders and the first murder. We thought we might find somebody that maybe could have, be, could have been the guy, but the guy that Rachel found, there's very little doubt that that's him. It has to be him. So here it is. I mean, was he actually suspected? I only have about 30 seconds. Was this guy suspected at, at, at any time? Just the first crime. The first murder. The first, the first crime, people knew it was him. Yeah. Okay. People knew it was him. That's how we know about him. But, but the other, other ninety, but the other ninety-nine or so, he wasn't. Nope. nope. He had no that's connection. Right. He just blew through town, and that's it. The book is "The Man from the Train: Solving of a Century-Old Serial Killer Mystery." Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James. Thank you very much for being with us today. Hey, Thank you. Hey, uh, hey, Bill. Just real quick, um, with this guy that you pointed out, uh, what would uh, his uh, M A R, his murders above replacement, be? I mean, could you put a number on that? His <laughs> hey, murders below replacement. <laughs> okay. Hey, thank you very much for for being with us today. And just thank for those who don't know, that is a baseball term: uh, wins above replacement. Uh, for a statistic they use in that. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we're we'll talking about the funerals. For one thing, also a lawsuit filed against opioid pharmaceuticals that manufacture opioids. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at upmcpinnacle.com. 